Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. When one speaks, one expects some questions like, please explain the points you made about this issue in marriage or that issue in premarriage stuff or anger or something. The only question I'm getting is, do I work for Whataburger? Um, I've never worked for Whataburger. I'm a Texan living in exile, and so I flash Whataburger stuff to indicate my loyalty more to my home state than to actual hamburger franchise. But I am thinking I may get one tomorrow before I go back to North Carolina. That's the big deal when In-N-Out invaded Texas and your people trying to decide. In-N-Out has cute little burgers. <laughs> three or four of those will fill you up, no problem. Um, anyway, is everybody at least able to see one of these folders? Did we get those out to everybody? No, some people can't. I, I, there's not enough for everybody. I was kind of trying to get enough for families to share. So I've got a few more if people want to raise their hands if they can't see one. It's not the end of the world if you can't, but it may help. Okay, let me begin this session with prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful that though we were once your enemies, that you have made peace with us through Christ. Help us to walk in his steps, in his image. Help me to make the principles from Scripture clear. Give us wisdom, we pray, even for people here who are presently involved in conflicts, about which I know absolutely nothing, that the teaching of your word would give help and your spirit would work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, conflict is all around us in the world, and it's obvious where there are wars going on, and uh, I guess political conflicts we have, uh, such as that. But even in terms of the kind of counseling ministry I do with Christians, you see, actually, sadly, you see a lot of conflict in churches, right? Uh, COVID was probably the most miserable thing for so many churches because you had some people who said, you're meeting, you're going to kill us all. And other people saying, how dare you bow the knee to the government and ask people to wear masks. And you know, there were just awful conflicts in the church among people who were very passionate on both sides. And it, I know, I think a lot of people quit the ministry. A lot of elders quit being elders, just got worn out through the whole thing. And a lot of those conflicts were carried on in very ungodly, unbiblical ways. There are conflicts in families. Uh, I saw an email from an old friend about how she has three sons, and they're not really talking to each other. And you know, they're adults in their 40s, and they're not getting along. And there are, we know cases, I have a friend who hasn't spoken to his parents in years because his father got upset with him about something and forbids his mother as well to speak with him. 
There's lots of conflict within marriages. Some result in divorce, others result in uh, just kind of suffering as they hang in there. Sometimes you have business conflicts where you can have business partners, sometimes even two brothers uh, sharing a business together and one of them wants to kind of go off on his own and the other one uh, doesn't want to do that and they didn't really set things up very clearly. there are, uh, this is not a new problem. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 6 that among the believers in Corinth, they were bringing shame upon the gospel because they were going to court against each other. So conflict is all around us, and yet the Bible tells us to have peace. And peace in the Bible is expressed in a couple different ways. There's an objective sense of peace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a status, being at peace with someone, as opposed to being at war or enmity with them. But also, uh, there's another sense, like probably you, like one of the five Hebrew words we all know would be peace is shalom. And there's a sense of peace we also see, like in Philippians 4, the peace which passes understanding that Peace is a a sense of well-being, not just the absence of war, but actually a sweet unity and uh, connection. There's a subjective aspect to it. And really, both aspects of peace come through the gospel. The greatest peacemaker ever is Jesus. He came on a peace mission as the Prince of Peace. Uh, Peace between God and men, but also peace among us. He prayed for our unity and John 17, and he also shows us how to make peace. The Bible doesn't just say peace is a good idea. Everybody says peace is a good idea. World leaders, probably Putin would say peace is a good idea. All kinds of people would say that, but the Bible actually tells us why we have conflict and how we can make peace, and especially thinking in the terms of families, Christians working together, even in the workplace, Uh, the church and one aspect of this especially in the church I have a friend who's a pastor and when we were talking about this he said this is something that should be taught in every church at least once a year so I know for some of you this is probably going to be review but we need these things because Christians even those of us who know these things fail to practice them and I have a great appreciation for Ken Sandy Uh, he's been a friend over the years to some extent and that he wrote a book, it's had gone through some revisions, called The Peacemaker. And Ken's story is actually, he was an attorney, and he got so frustrated with how the U.S. law system works, being in an adversarial system, not trying to mediate problems, and even seeing how Christians don't practice what the Bible says about peacemaking. He wrote what he called a systematic theology of peacemaking, bringing together the strands of what the Bible teaches, about how to make peace. And, and the time to teach about these things in the church is not in the middle of a crisis when whoever it is that's teaching you know, is going to be perceived by one side or the other as having an agenda. It's something, again, we just need to, we want to build what he would call a culture of peace in the church. Uh, I'll also mention, I don't know if you're aware, there's a children's curriculum. And now I think you can buy the PDFs and make your own, or you can buy the little comic books that goes through the basics of peacemaking. You'd make a good Sunday school class or a vacation Bible school if you haven't done that. Uh, And so biblical peacemaking is really applying the gospel in everyday life. 
and it's very powerful. Actually, among my most favorite kinds of counseling to do is biblical peacemaking among Christians, even husbands and wives, that people who really believe the gospel, they're really converted when you help them to walk through what the Bible says about how to make peace, why to make peace, grounding in the gospel, it produces the most rapid results I ever see in counseling when these principles come across to people. So, uh, and I'm going to be referencing a couple times the folder, but again, you're not lost without it. Everything's in my notes. And what I'm presenting is, you know, I've read The Peacemaker and other books that Sandy and others have written. And so I'm not claiming in one sense to have any original thoughts. I'm really relying upon a lot of what they've done. But it is in my own voice because I do this so much. It'll be kind of processed through my experience. But I'll use some of the structure that uh, Sandy uses as we go through. And you'll see that this little brochure is a summary of what I'll talk about tonight and tomorrow. It's a summary of this 300-page book. Uh, I think it helps to have heard the talks and or read the book, and then this will be more useful. It's actually something I keep typically, Caroline keeps some of these in our Bibles, and we just use them a lot with people helping them navigate conflict biblically. So, uh, first main point, you can't avoid conflict completely. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, as far as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. You see, there's a caveat there. You can't make peace alone. There's going to be conflict in a fallen world. Uh, Robert Jones wrote a book about conflict resolution. He said, the Bible contains four chapters of peace, which is the first two and the last two, with 1,185 chapters of conflict in between. From, uh, Genesis 3 through Revelation, I guess, 20. And we read from the Bible that all conflict is somehow related to sin. Our conflict with God, when God established his standard even in the garden, and when we violated his standard, when we, when we sin, we're creating conflict between us and God. Romans 5 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. But our attempt at autonomy and our rejection of God's standard puts us in active opposition to God, rejecting his lordship. But then also conflict among people. Uh, even in Genesis 3, when the man said, after the Lord says, what have you done? And says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And so, you know, Adam blames Eve or the Lord for giving him Eve in one sense. And we saw with the men, and we'll go back to James 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's, it's your desires. You, you, you lust, you desire, and you don't get, and then you harm other people. And so our conflicts um, are going to, you know, it's because of our own sin. It doesn't mean if you're in a conflict, it's necessarily because of your sin. Another aspect would be the closer you are to your fellow sinners, the more likely an intense conflict may become. Something I've heard more than once from people who have been newly married is I never knew what a sinner I was until I got married and started living with this person and we started rubbing against each other. That's actually a good way of saying it. Some will say I never knew what a sinner she was uh, until I married her. Um, the same thing will be true is there's a lot of conflict among elder boards and deacon boards and women's committees and people in church. when when you're working together and people have different opinions and people sin against each other, 
it can get really messy. And as I mentioned from Romans 12:18, uh, if possible, so far as it depends upon you. Hebrews also talks about 12:14, pursue peace with all men. And sometimes you feel like you're pursuing peace and it's just going faster than you are. Like I'm trying to run a marathon and there's this guy from Kenya who weighs half of what I do and can run twice as fast or four times as fast, whatever way ahead of me. I'm pursuing him, but I'll never get there. Um, and so there are limitations as well, is that you can't pursue peace at the expense of truth. And probably the most vivid example of this I can think of in the New Testament was a very awkward situation. I imagine if you were there in Galatians 2, when Paul says in verse 11, describing something that had happened in the past, he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And so here are the two leading apostles. And, and when Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles because he was under pressure from the Judaizers, Paul, in front of everybody, opposes Peter because he can't let that implicit compromise of the gospel go on with that public sin. Uh, there are situations in life where... It's impossible to make peace. I imagine out of this many people, there's probably somebody who's gone through a divorce. Not everyone who's gone through a divorce is the guilty party. There's some people who've made every effort. And 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, you know, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave, for God has called us to peace. And sometimes the peace that is made is you do everything you can to try to save the marriage, but the spouse abandons the marriage and you can't stop that from happening. And there'll be other relationships in life as well. Somebody at work just doesn't like you. Uh, someone in the family is completely unreasonable, some extended relative. Caroline has a friend who's been badly estranged with her sister over something and she's you know, trying to work it out. The good news is God doesn't hold you responsible to create peace. He holds you responsible to pursue peace. And sometimes you may pursue it and the other person will not cooperate. Now, so you can't always avoid conflict, but you can't avoid sin. Uh, one of the famous parts of, of Ken Sandy's book, and it's in here in the, op in the middle here, is what he calls the slippery slope. And how many of you have seen that before tonight? Not too many, okay. Anyway, what he's doing basically is saying when it comes to conflict, there are two bad response, two types of bad responses and then there are some biblical responses to conflict. And to summarize, he says, there are some people when conflict happens who like to fight, and there are some people who like to run. And both of those can be unbiblical. You know, when, when someone wrongs you to take revenge, Romans 12 says, don't take your own revenge. Uh, attacking people verbally with his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. Uh, people say awful things. Gossip and slander, where even behind their back, you, you say terrible things about somebody, a slanderer separates intimate friends. Uh, even worse is physical assault or abuse or murder. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 6 in the church in Corinth, there were people who were suing each other, Christians in the church suing each other. Uh, I've seen those cases. I had a case uh, several years ago and there was a man, I'll call him Jorge, and he was 42 years old, living with his mother, single, never married. And Jorge fell in love with the gal. Actually, well, he brought the gal to me to see what I thought of her. 
His mother opposed the marriage. Uh, her husband had divorced her many years earlier. Jorge's brother had gone off, gotten married and left. She was very dependent upon Jorge. And Jorge and his mother also had invested together in a bunch of houses in the San Diego area. This would be like in the 90s. And, and so when Jorge wanted to get married, there were actually a couple of conflicts. One is his mother didn't want him to marry the girl. Well, we met the girl. And they'd actually been going together for several years, but Jorge was afraid of his mother. And the only thing wrong with that girl is she was putting up with Jorge, as far as I was concerned. But she's a godly Christian, and she loves him, and there's no biblical reason why they weren't free to marry. But then when, when they moved towards marriage, they had these properties. And, and a friend of mine had actually tried to, to um, mediate between Jorge and his mother so they could kind of divide it up, but the mother wanted everything. And so they wound up in court, and basically the lawyers got it all, and you know, like maybe the mother got the house she was living in, and it was so sad, because right after that property took off, like it has this past year as well, and you know, they lost virtually everything. Ken Sandy writes that courts can transfer money, but they can't restore relationships. So some people want to fight, nobody's going to mess with me. Other people run. Various forms. Some people just like pretend they're not a problem, sweep it under the rug. Uh, that can be dangerous because your lug, rug can get pretty lumpy in 43 years of marriage. Uh, just don't want to talk about it. Uh, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down in your anger in Ephesians 4. And sometimes you, you don't verbalize the anger, but it's in your heart and it, and it festers. Uh, in our church in Escondido in 1995, we bought. We'd been meeting in a school. The Lord provided that we could buy a building in Escondido. Had a small yard in it. And in that yard, there was a little sprig that when the guy who was mowing the yard mowed the yard, he went around this little sprig. Guess what is there now? A tree that's in, tangled up into the electric lines. And what could have been pulled out with two fingers in 1995, now you'd have to hire a crew to cut the thing down, cut it up, and they've had to pay to get it untangled. Anyway, illustration being conflicts that start small. And sometimes when you find out what is it that began this breach in relationship, if it's not dealt with, and if you just keep avoiding it, it gets bigger and bigger. Uh, other things that happen is you know, people, uh, there's divorce, separation, you know, avoiding working out problems. Uh, or even just withdrawing emotionally and just saying, okay, I'm just not going to talk to this person anymore. You know, leaving a friendship. A lot of people leave churches, right? Somebody in the church offends them, and then they go find the church that doesn't have offensive people. <laughs> and no, what they do is then a year or two later, then they leave that church and go to the next church and the next church because they never try to want to try to work things through. The ultimate escape is suicide just getting away from your problems. And so, you know, on the chart here, so there are those who avoid conflict, there are those who almost like conflict, and then in the middle, Sandy has biblical responses of forgiveness and restoration and, and mediation and even arbitration. Um, now, my observation in marriage counseling, and probably, you, again, I don't know all you that well, but usually in marriage, you usually have one who's prone to fight and one who's prone to run. And that can be a difficult combination. Uh, but it's true in my marriage. And you have to teach 
the one who wants to run to engage, and the one who wants to fight to engage graciously. Now, Sandy also talks about how conflict brings opportunity. Uh, and this is, you know, the difference between us and unbelievers is not that we don't have conflicts and they do. The difference is, is that we have the gospel, we have the word of God to help us navigate our conflicts and resolve them differently. And Sandy talks about when a conflict comes, it's an opportunity to glorify God. First Corinthians 10.31, which says we should glorify him in everything. Conflict gives us an opportunity to grow to be more Christ-like. Romans 8 says we are predestined to become conformed to the image of his son and to make sacrifices and to love people and to cover over sin is good. It gives us a chance to serve others. Sometimes it can even be a witness to unbelievers how we can work through things that they could not. One thing to remember when you're in a conflict, it's not all about you. God may be working in many lives. And then a crucial aspect would be in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says we have is our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Is that the first thing you think of when you're in a conflict? Uh, it should be. Yeah, the object isn't I want to win. It's not even I want what's fair to me or justice. That's not irrelevant, but it's not the most important thing. The issue has to be I want to please God in this situation. I mean, I'll tell a brief personal story that I've had in the last year or so some challenging, a challenging relationship. And as I was going to a meeting that I was kind of dreading where things are going to have to be worked through and knowing my own flesh, and I would probably be in the category of fight, not flee, um, I spent a chunk of time praying through the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 and praying that whatever happened in that meeting, and even if I felt like it wasn't fair, that God would give me grace to show love, joy, peace, patience, etc. in that situation, that God would be glorified by what happens, even if it's not satisfactory to me in terms of how things turn out. So, uh, moving on briefly, we want to be people who don't cause conflict. I'm going to touch on this part very, very briefly. Uh, to be humble. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's our pride that says no one messes with me. You know, that if they do wrong, they got to pay for it. Humility shows grace. Uh, don't be people who stir up strife. We talked last night about uh, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man. Any fool will quarrel. Uh, to be careful with our speech, not to say hurtful things or careless things. Uh, to listen to others, to build others up with our words. Caroline talked about that with the ladies. An important aspect is to be willing to overlook certain offenses. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love overlooks or covers a multitude of sins. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. In Proverbs 19, it says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. That's such a language there, right? The, the beauty of Scripture. Sometimes it's glorious to, in your heart, just choose to let something pass. Uh, again, speaking personally, married 43 years. I married a sinner. She's less of a sinner than I am, but a sinner nonetheless. And sometimes something may happen and I feel slighted and I will actually try to go through a mental process saying, I'm going to, by the grace of God, choose to overlook this without having to go through a process of litigating 
the problem, not always having to stand on my rights. And so being willing to let things go. We'll talk later about, you can't always do that. Um, and sometimes being willing to make some sacrifices for the sake of peace, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And then even just trusting God ultimately, that he's the one who brings justice. Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 23, and when being reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. So conflict is unavoidable. We, need to, we want to try to not create conflict unnecessarily with our being quarrelsome. We want to be willing, in many cases, just overlook things. But let's say now you're in a conflict. Jesus has very specific wisdom, and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. He says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the principle there is when you're in a conflict, first look in the mirror. Uh, I will speak personally again that I've not been in too many conflicts where I've been completely without fault. My tendency is when people wrong me not to respond as well as I should to that and sometimes to make the conflict worse. And so giving you a real counseling situation that often happens is that a couple comes in, they're having a lot of conflict in their marriage, they've come for help, which is good, and what they want to do is they each want to play prosecutor and tell me how bad the other person is. I think I mentioned last night the guy that wrote me a several page description of how awful his wife is that he wanted me to read that even before the session began to make his case. It's like I'm going to win by showing you she's worse than I am and then you know, she can do a pretty good job of showing how bad he is. And so when a couple comes in they start saying, oh well she nags me all the time and oh well he's neglects me. I say, whoa, 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 okay. We're going to read Matthew 7, and our ground rule tonight is going to be the only person about whose sin you can speak is your own sin. And so I want you to begin by confessing how your sin has contributed to the problems in your marriage, and you can't talk about the other person's sin yet. Who wants to go first? Now, I realize there can be cases of abuse or otherwise where that's, I'm talking about normal marital conflict. And then, you know, to deal with our own hearts, where we talked also with the men, like from James 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source, your desires that wage war in your members. You desire and don't get, and then you murder. That conflict happens, we get angry because we wanted something we didn't get. And sometimes the thing we wanted to us seemed perfectly fair. Uh, example, is it wrong for a wife to hope that her husband will remember her birthday. That's not wrong. But let's say that the day before her birthday, she's kind of waiting for a package to be delivered. You know, what's he gonna do this year? I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, the next morning, uh, she's, you know, is there gonna be breakfast in bed? Is there gonna be a gift at the breakfast table? Nothing, he goes off to work. So she's, again, maybe a 
florist will come deliver flowers to me today. Uh, you know, maybe something else will happen. Okay, not yet. Well, perhaps he will take me to dinner. So I'm not even going to make dinner tonight. I'm just going to wait till he comes home to take me to dinner. By the way, this actually happened to a friend of mine, more or less in this sequence. Um, and he gets home, like, where's dinner? He's totally forgotten. Now, what might that wife do? I can't believe you forgot. You know, I'm not even going to say what she might say, but you know, she'd be tempted to say, I didn't get what I wanted. Now, it wasn't wrong for her to want her husband to remember her birthday, but if she says nasty things to him and calls him a terrible husband, now she's sinned and she's got a log in her eye that she needs to deal with. Not, you know, he does too. We'll get to that also. So when you get angry, when you're in a conflict, ask yourself, what did I want? And often I wanted, even it could be a good thing, but I wanted it too much. And therefore I responded simply. Very important point. Before you go to the person, first go to the Lord. In Psalm 51, after David did terrible things, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. And so when, if I'm impatient with Caroline, for which I've had to seek forgiveness many times, uh, I've had to go to the Lord appropriately first for not treating the wife he gave me as I should before even I go to her. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Then you seek forgiveness from your brother or your sister. Try to be specific. And when should you do that? And by the way, one of the assignments I often give will be to encourage a couple, okay, we got started on this, I showed you this, make a log list, make a list of where your sin is, and then you know, work it through with each other and you know, start confessing to seek forgiveness from one another. And they'll come back and say, oh, it was too busy this week. We had, Sally had ballet practice and Joey had soccer and I worked late, so we never really dealt with it. I'll say, well, read Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, where it says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Principle being, if you've wronged your brother or your sister, it's extremely important. Jesus is not saying worship is unimportant. He's saying as important as worship is, getting that conflict resolved before worship is even more important. And so if you know someone has something against you and we'll say, well, what if she's 80% wrong and I'm 20% wrong? Well, two points. One is she probably thinks you're 80% wrong and she's 20% wrong. And when you got a log sticking out of your eye, your vision isn't very good. Um, the second point would be go confess your 20%. Go deal with what your sin is. Um, now, something that one of the best things in here is on the back, it has the seven A's of confession. Ken Sandy also likes, he's better at alliteration than I do. He does it all the time. But this has been really helpful because, again, giving you another analogy, I mentioned last night, like some families or some marriages that started out as neat fields and all that, they become cluttered with weeds and thorn bushes and everything through neglect. And one manifestation of weeds in the garden 
in the garden of your marriage or your relationships is unresolved conflicts. And oftentimes, I've had couples come in and over many years, they've never really resolved conflicts in a biblical way. They just kind of swept them under the rug and just kept going. And while bitterness often grows, and the analogy I'll give is you've got this garden full of weeds and it's gonna take some effort. And what sometimes people do is to say, you're right, I'm sorry for all the stuff I've ever done. And then they will kind of want to move on. And I call that like mowing the weeds instead of pulling the weeds. If you mow the weeds, what's going to happen? They're going to come right back again. And what I love about what Ken Sandy has with the seven A's of confession, it's how to pull the weeds and then spray on the gospel roundup or something that, uh, you know, just saying, I'm sorry, you know, is not sufficient. Even you know, saying I'm sorry could be, I'm sorry you're so sensitive, I'm sorry it happened. Uh, and so the seven A's, I'm gonna take an example, it's a bit of an awkward one, but it's clear in my mind anyway. Uh, I had a real situation many years ago where a wife went out to her car and she'd been shopping in the grocery store, I think, and there was a handwritten letter on the windscreen of her car. And she reads the handwritten letter, and it's written by a woman who claimed to have been in an intimate relationship with this lady's husband for a considerable period of time. And she wrote out a lot of details about that. So the wife brings this thing home. Her husband comes home, and she says, I got this letter from this person. Is it true? He says, yes, it's true. I did have a relationship. It was wrong. And I broke it off, and now she's mad. That's why she wrote the letter, so I'm sorry. Now we just got to forget about it. He was from New York. Um, and actually, when they came to see me, she's still been carrying that letter around in her purse now for like six months. And she actually spoke to a friend who said, well, he said he was sorry. You need to forgive him. And yet, that would be to me an example of someone pulling the weeds. I mean, I'm mowing the weeds. It may be not even, the, the setting was so high, he barely touched them, but uh, there's a lot more to it. And so one thing I did with them is went through uh, the seven A's in terms of trying to get more into the depth of what went wrong, what, what, where the sin was. So I'll, again, I'll rattle through this fairly quickly because of time, but address everyone involved. It wasn't just the wife who was hurt. It was the teenage children living in the home who learned what had happened and were affected by what their father had done. Um, avoiding, the next one is avoid if, but, and maybe. If you want to hear a horrible confession, watch athletes and politicians when they get busted for something. Well, if I offended anybody by my racist comment, I'm sorry. Uh, or I'm sorry, but. You know, like, I know I shouldn't have got so angry, but boy, after what you did, how can I help myself? It just negates any effort of you trying to make. It, it just makes the confession worthless. When you're confessing your faults, when you're seeking forgiveness, your only objective is to talk about the log in your eye. If you start talking about the log in their eye, game over. Third is admit specifically, not just sorry for the bad stuff I did. Use biblical language. I was sinfully impatient. I told lies. And by the way, in that case, the lies were the biggest problem. I lived a lie. Uh, I wasted, you know, he wasted a bunch of money on that bad relationship and on it went. So 
confess specifically how you've hurt that other person. The next one is really crucial. Acknowledge the hurt that, and again, I'm not saying every time somebody leaves the socks on the ground, this needs to happen, but for significant matters that say, I'm trying to understand how this would affect you, how it's hard for you to trust me, how uh, you know, devastating it is that you know, I, I've hurt you. You can make a person wonder about themselves if your spouse would do that, and to weep with those who weep. The next is accept the consequences. And, and that would be, I will be accountable, which kind of goes on with alter your behavior. I'm gonna not travel. I'm gonna never travel alone. I'm gonna put, find my friends on my phone and so you can know where I am and some guy's gonna keep me accountable. Uh, we had a case in our church one time where someone stole a bunch of money. They had a very clever scheme to embezzle from our offerings. And it was great they confessed, but the consequence was, A, you're not going to work with money. B, you pay it back. And then the most important of all is ask for forgiveness. When God forgives us, how does it happen? 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God only forgives those who ask for forgiveness. And when I wrong Caroline or other people, and I say, will you please forgive me? I'm, I'm essentially asking, will you grant me forgiveness, just which mirrors the gospel and how God forgives us when we ask. There's a big difference between I'm sorry, which I think is very vague, as opposed to will you forgive me for what I did wrong. Uh, requires humility. Um, often, by the way, when there's a conflict and you do this, the other person would then admit their fault and seek your forgiveness as well. Uh, sometimes, when it doesn't go that great, you might want to get mediation and help going through it. Another general principle would be that I, I've actually had situations where I had, a, I remember a couple that came in, we went through this whole process, and we pulled the weeds and confessed and forgave, and a couple principles. One would be, Bare dirt is not the objective of marriage. You don't want to resolve the conflicts, you want to plant the flowers. And planting the flowers would imply building positively into the relationship, the love, the affection, the communication, the time together that's there, it should be there instead of the conflict. But another thing is, like, if you pulled all the weeds in your garden tomorrow, does that mean you'll never have a weed again? We live in a fallen world. And there was one couple where they pull all the weeds and like they came back six months later and the weeds had grown back again. And what Carol and I think in terms of is we hate weeds. I don't mean literal ones as much as spiritual ones, is that we don't want the sun go to, to go down in our anger. We want to swiftly resolve our conflicts lest they get worse. Um, sometimes it's people find it hard to forgive, sometimes they need time to process what's happened. Proverbs says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Sometimes it may be you didn't adequately pull the weeds and you say, is there something else? You know, help me understand. Are there other ways I've hurt or offended you? Um, I, I want to make things right. One more major point before we go on to the next thing. So, we've seen in the, in the peacemaking process, first get the log out of your own eye. But back to Matthew 7, when you get the log of, out of your own eye, are you done? 
No. Jesus says, after you get the log out of your own eye, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And this is actually, part of it would be for the person who's the conflict avoider. These are the things they don't want to do. And the Bible requires, love requires sometimes that you go to your brother and show him or your sister their fault and correct them. In Leviticus 19.18 is the verse we know that's quoted in the New Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The preceding verse says, you, shall not, you must not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. And so sometimes we have a duty even when someone's in sin uh, to bring correction to them. This is part of what we talked about with the little counseling group after lunch, Romans 15, 14, where Paul says, concerning you, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to admonish or correct each other. It's actually, uh, that word is sometimes used of like parents disciplining children. And so if you love somebody and they're falling into sin, sometimes the Bible requires us to get involved even if we don't want to. And so, a passage which is a wonderful summary of this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And so sometimes... Uh, the most important thing you do. So, and you said, what do you mean? Earlier you said we overlook things. And, and there are some sins that must be confronted and there's some that we may overlook. And I have some guidelines there in your notes. Uh, and even how you see things are dealt with in the Bible. Some sins are so serious that it would not be loving unless you did confront them. Uh, there are sins like in 1 Corinthians 5 when you had the man who was involved in shameful immorality that would even be an embarrassment to the Gentiles. It was necessary uh, for the holiness of the church and for the good of that person's soul and the fact that it would bring shame upon the gospel and the church for him to continue going that way. Um, there are sins that may uh, harm your offenders. So, I mean, to harm the person personally. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he says, my brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, he should know, let him know that one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So you have a roommate and you see the roommate is using alcohol to kind of deal with loneliness or discouragement or stress and they're over drinking and even getting inebriated. And or you see that when you walk into the room, they slam down the laptop or they hide their phone and you get a glimpse there's something on there they shouldn't be looking at. Even though you'd like to ignore it, love requires you, if they're believers especially, to try to rescue them because sin only gets worse if it's not dealt with. And then sometimes they're just problems that affect can affect your relationship with the other person. You realize that if this isn't resolved, it's gonna be very hard for me to be close to this person. I'm gonna be tempted to bitterness. If I let the sun go down in my anger, I'm giving the devil an opportunity. And again, just making kind of a confession. There are times in my marriage 
where in my heart I'll say, you know, if I was more godly, I would just overlook this. And yet I'm struggling so much, I'll go to Carolyn and say, if I was more godly, I would overlook this, but it would really help me if you would seek my forgiveness, because this thing hurt my feelings, even though if I was more godly, I wouldn't be so hurt. Um, as you do this, the peacemaker, have, Ken Sandy coined a term like passport, or you could use the term visa, is that if, you know, like when we travel internationally, we need a passport to get across the border or a visa to get into the country. And ideally, if you're confronting somebody, you have passport into their life, meaning there's a relationship of trust. Uh, the person who most often corrects me is Caroline, but I trust that she's on my side, that she's not correcting me in order to nag me or make me feel badly, that she is correcting me uh, for the good of my soul. Actually, a story I've told a couple times is that um, during Caroline being a conflict avoider, I remember 20 or more years into our marriage, I'm thinking she almost has never corrected me. <laughs> That's kind of dangerous. And then she got trained in biblical counseling. <laughs> and she's been making up for lost time ever since. <laughs> so you want to have a relationship of trust. And then I also would say you need to be pretty sure. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, she did that to annoy me. You don't really know her motives of her heart unless she said, I want to annoy you now. We should assume the best and not the worst. Uh, pride is something that we can kind of smell or sense in people, but it's really hard to prove it and, unless they explicitly say something. Uh, sometimes it might be appropriate, help me understand why you did this. Help me understand why you, you, you said this. But we can't know people's hearts. So you want to have a pretty good level of proof by something actually said or done and not just a feeling you had in a confrontation. And then Matthew 18, 15, you know that says, if your brother sins, what are you supposed to do? Tell everybody else what they did to you so they'll feel sorry for you and have compassion? No. Go to your brother and to go, and I, I think just watching how this works, to go as personally as possible. Don't post on Instagram or Twitter what this person did to you. That's revenge, that's not correction. And the temptation even can be, and I even see this in marriages where a woman's upset with her husband and instead of going to him, she tells her friends or her mother or sister or whatever and probably you know, is turning them against him even if she resolves it later. Uh, and so you go to the person directly. And I would also add that to do it as personally as possible, uh, we, our elder board in, in Escondido, when I was there, we learned, actually another church had this practice that if somebody needs to be confronted, it's not to be done in a text or an email. Do it in person. I actually wrote a blog called Talk to Me, Don't Text Me. That a personal interaction gives a chance for the person to sense your care for them and your facial expression. It gives them a chance to clarify if they don't understand you. Um, you can work things out, express your love and concern. And so confrontation, again, Jesus says it's like taking a speck out of somebody's eye. Uh, you want to do it as personally as possible. You know, there can be exceptions in terms of abuse where to be safe, you need to have somebody else there. Or there are some sins that are very public, 
that need to be dealt with publicly. There are examples of that in the Bible. But usually you go as personally as possible. And then Galatians 6 tells you how to do it. Um, if someone's caught on a trespass, you are spiritual, restore him gently. Um, and, and even as I, I start, sometimes I realize I need to talk to somebody about something. And even I, as a person who probably deals with conflict better than most people, and I'm, I don't run from it, even then I'm trying to think, is there a way I could avoid this? And the question is really, what would please God? And oftentimes, like even in counseling, I want my counselees to like me. And I know if I tell them that dating this non-believer is wrong, they're not going to like me as much anymore unless the Spirit changes their hearts. And so the question is, what would God have me to do here? What is my responsibility before God to please Him? And then the next aspect would be to pray. And one specific thing I pray is that the Lord would give me the right situation, the right opportunity, like the proverb says, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance that uh, I don't like just kind of like charging into a situation. I'm praying that somehow in normal life and that there'd be the right time, the right place to do this. Uh, just going through the verse in a little more detail, he says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, um, this, this picture of being caught in a trespass, oftentimes when people sin, we look at it as it's a sin against us. And in a secondary sense, it may be. Like my, the man who was unfaithful to his wife, he did sin against his wife, but it was much more a, a problem between him and God. If your friend, your spouse has fallen into sin, it's primarily a trespass against God. It's indicative of a broken relationship with God. And the relationship that needs to be restored first is his relationship to God, even before with you. And you're on a rescue mission. So they're caught. And even this word caught, it makes me think of like the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy that got caught by the robbers and beaten up. And so sin crouching has grabbed him. And there he is, beaten and bloody by sin, like we all have been sometimes. And we're there to help him. Uh, this also can be really useful to understand in thinking of cases like of infidelity. I, I've been told that the most helpful thing for the innocent party is to realize that his sin was primarily against God, not me. If, if that makes sense. That, and then the word of the verb of what you're to do is restore such a one. Restore is, again, it's a rescue mission. It's, it's used in the New Testament of fishermen whose nets have been torn and they're restoring their nets. And so you want to go for the purpose of helping them to be right with God again, restoring their relationship with God as Jesus restores us as wayward sinners. And who's qualified to do it? Looking at Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual. And this is one place in the New Testament where the meaning of the word spiritual, it doesn't just mean like, oh, you're just so spiritual in some esoteric sense. You go back to Galatians 5.16, if we walk in the spirit, if you walk in the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh include outbursts of anger and strife. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what he's saying is that you need to be in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, 
before you try to confront somebody. Most confrontation takes place when people are very fleshly. Most people avoid conflict, and finally, as, as the temperature rises and they get more and more frustrated, finally, when they're boiling over, they vent, and they tear down the person who's done wrong, and that just makes things worse. And so if you're really, really angry, and you want to vent your anger on somebody, you're not spiritual. You're in the flesh, and you need to get in the spirit. You need to go before God, confess your own sin, and pray that as you go, you would go with the gentleness it describes here and all the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Go gently, lovingly, humbly. We too are sinners. We're chief of sinners. We've been given much grace. He says, go carefully, lest you too be tempted. And then if he repents, you rejoice. Now, it's my belief that in all close relationships, these things are going to be happening. That uh, in our marriage, there are times we have to seek forgiveness from each other. There are times we have to correct each other. Uh, when you work together as elders, you have relationships with other people in your family. Uh, that is part of the way things are in this fallen world. And to neglect seeking forgiveness, we'll talk about granting forgiveness tomorrow, uh, is ultimately going to damage relationships. And so, again, in summary, conflict is unavoidable. We don't want to bring conflict unnecessarily by being quarrelsome. If you're in a conflict, first get the log out of your own eye. And when you do that, don't just mow the weeds. Don't just, oh, I'm sorry, and try to minimize it. And by the way, when we're wrong, we want to minimize it. But do everything you can to pull the weeds in terms of specifically confessing where you were wrong. Try and understand how it's hurt the other person. Seek their forgiveness. And then in all close relationships, if you really love somebody and you see that they're falling into sin, your motivation isn't, you've really annoyed me and I want you to stop annoying me or know how annoyed I am, but it's, I want to help you. I want to, I'm, I'm on a rescue mission to not just restore our relationship with each other, but even more important, to restore uh, your relationship with God. Now, the gospel is central to this. Tomorrow we'll talk about how we forgive as we've been forgiven. Uh, but even tonight, that if you don't have peace with God, you cannot achieve peace with man. You cannot achieve peace with each other. And we have a Savior who came into the world on this peace mission, our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son was made one of us. And he became like Philippians 2. He humbled himself and became a servant. And then as a servant, he, he died because there was no other way that God's just anger could be turned away, but that Christ would stand in our place, die for us, so that we could have peace with God. And then, you know, the only way we can have that peace is we confess our sin, believe on him, and he invites us, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and he will abundantly pardon. And when you see how though we were God's enemies and Christ has reconciled us to him, and then when we have a savior, you pray, Lord, unite them. When we have in the scriptures revealed how God wants us in our families and our churches, uh, to be united. He doesn't want us to be in conflict with each other, that through Christ, it, it's a motivation, but also we'll talk more tomorrow. It's 
union with Christ and the knowledge of his grace to us that enables us to forgive, to resolve, and to love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom of your word as we live in a world full of conflict and brokenness that as we've been restored to you solely by your grace, we can learn to practice gospel love and grace and forgiveness. And Lord, help us even the conflicts we're in now. Some may be in conflicts. They've done everything they can. And the other party is embittered or angry or whatever it is. Comfort those people who are estranged, but also, Lord, help us to pursue peace, humbly not to be proud, to admit our own faults to you, to others, to gently restore, and to have reconciliation in, in hard and broken relationships. And we have hope this can happen because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.